Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello everyone, it's Peter here. We have been quite quiet recently. I've had my own book out, which you can hear about in the previous episode on this feed, and I've been busy with a new project for unseenhistories.com. But then an author and a story came along that was so perfect for travels through time that we decided that it was time for a brand new episode. S.C. Gwynn is an American writer who's very well known for his 2010 book, Empire of the Summer Moon, which was a major New York Times bestseller and a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Just recently, he's returned with another book, His Majesty's Airship, which tells the story of the life and tragic death of the world's largest flying machine. It was a titanic of the skies, and it was called R101. Despite being English and loving history, I knew very little of R101's tragic story. Reading the book, I realised I knew very little about the airship era too. Well, the other day I spoke to Sam about this extraordinary story which happened about a century ago and which is strangely forgotten today. We do have a couple of copies of His Majesty's Airship to give away for you. They are beautiful hardback books, so do keep listening to hear about how you can win one of them. Otherwise, enjoy. Well, S.C. Gwynn, a warm welcome to our podcast, Travels Through Time. I'm talking to you from a town just outside London on a stormy night in October. Does this sound appropriate for the conversation that we're about to have? <laughs> it sounds just perfect, yeah. We're going to get onto the story of R101 or R101, as I think they uh, they were fond of calling it back um, in the time, and the airships and the characters that are connected to this tragic but also if I may put it in this way very entertaining bit of history I'm not sure if those two things can be fused together but I'm going to manage but I want to ask you a little bit more about the airship era broadly before we get into the specific story because during the first third of the 20th century airships were really were one of the most exciting new technologies so could you just tell us a little bit about that era it's an era which I feel is just vanished completely almost from memory it has well the airships I mean you first have to kind of define your terms and say what an airship is what we're talking about here when we kind of talk about the airship era of the 20th century which lasted 40 years um period these are rigid airships. It's a type of airship. And so when you think of, say, let's say the Hindenburg or or Zeppelins, early Zeppelins, these are large, very large things with, uh, you know, between five and seven, eight hundred feet long. And they are made out of steel or steel or steel alloy frames. And so you have, you know, frames wrapped with linen. Basically, that's what they are. They're the gigantic steel frame. And, uh, and that's what a rigid airship is. It is not a balloon. It is not a blimp. And to, to give you a little, just a little bit of background, you know, the first lighter than air 
thing balloon that went up went up in the 18th century and you know but people were astonished you know you could uh in a world where uh gravity rules and everything else goes down this thing went up you could put hydrogen or you know hot air into it and the balloon would go up and the problem is you couldn't steer it it just went wherever it went and and it was they were used in the american civil war and the crimean war as observation balloons but you know that's what and then in the uh, 19th century the french kind of added on to this by putting a you know a rudder and a propeller on one of these things again a balloon just an envelope with hot air usually hydrogen in it and then you could steer this thing and it became it's interesting because that you, you will you all will recognize the uh, etymology here i guess it's in french the word to be able to steer or drive is diriger and something that could be diriger became a dirigeable right dirigible it was a steerable um, balloon in this case. Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, this remarkable uh, German count, uh, lifelong military man with a giant walrus mustache, changed the world in 1900 with his first big rigid, 450 feet long. Um, he started building these things and they, they came to be known, a word that entered uh, European languages in the 1901 or 1900 as Zeppelins. And that's what they were. And and basically, the whole era begins with the building of these Zeppelins. And, and the reason they were built was he had only one purpose, one purpose alone, not passenger aircraft, not cargo, war, weapons of war. And he unleashed them, he, Germany uh, unleashed them, built by Zeppelin on the world in uh, World War I, 1914, 1915, 1916, those years. You know, suddenly you had fleets of Zeppelins attacking European cities. You know, Paris, Budapest, England got by far the worst of it. And um, and what they did was they became the world's first long-range bombers. People forget that. They became the first world's first weapons of mass terror. They became the first idea, if you will, of uh, in, in, the, in the mind of a human being that he could be annihilated from above by something other than a thunderbolt. So these waves of Zeppelins came across as bombers in Europe. And that... This is the beginning of the airship era. The Germans dominating it. Um, after the war, the Germans are pretty much shut down for the most part. The British then and the Americans step in. And we have the 20s to the 30s, really, to the middle 30s, that phase of the uh, of the airship uh, era, uh, ending really just, just before, before World War II. And so this is what it, it's, a, it's an up and down. I mean... The, the bottom line to keep in mind here is the, this was a bad idea. It was a technologically bad idea. It didn't really work. And yet nationalism, mostly the idea, kept it going for, uh, well, 39, 40 years before pretty much end of the rigid airship era. And the stuff, if you want to see a Goodyear blimp or a Fuji blimp or something, those are not rigid airships. Those are much smaller. They're just envelopes, basically, with air and, you know, he, in this case, helium inside Mm. You, you write a lot about the use of them as weapons in World War One um, at the beginning. Um, a brief history of a bad idea, I think, is how you... <laughs> it was very bad. Like one of the uh, worst weapon ideas ever. <laughs> but I think there's one, there's this tension, isn't there, with, with the Zeppelins right from the beginning. People are, have this enormous romantic attra attraction towards them. They are just filled with the possibility of these being weapons. And and you talk about how they're propagandized by the newspapers back home and people buy into the into the lie almost. But um actually the reality from the beginning is one, 
well, it's a story of two parts, really. One is that they're quite ineffective as weapons. They kind of kill a few farm animals and uh, and occasionally a bomb will drop on on a target, but much more often things go awry. And But the, the other thing that's really quite dangerous from the beginning, of these, um, we, we're familiar with the idea of U-boats being a, an enormously dangerous um, place to be for the, the German soldiers later on in World War II, of course, but... This idea of going in a zeppelin is is just as bad because you, you know they're frequently. I mean, the idea of these great floating targets moving very slowly, completely prone to the weather, uh, the searchlights picking them out and being yes. shot down by tracers. I mean, this is it's a kind of terrifying thing. But I think what we have here, which was really interesting for me, is this combination of the like the, the romantic attachment that we have to this idea and the complete impracticality of it at the same time. Is that right? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was what they were offering to people who wanted to use them for peaceful reasons was this kind of beautiful idea that instead of being on a noisy, oil-splattered, dangerous uh, airplane, back in those days, incredibly dangerous, and you'd be floating high above the world at a comfortable speed at 1500 feet, looking down at the deer running through forests and having a cup of tea on your way. I mean, this kind of idea of air travel. And this is this is what caught the world's idea. And it later caught very much the idea of the, Brit- of the, of the British Empire and the Americans, too. And, and this was this side. The other side, as you say, were the weapons and, and their origin is in weaponry. And I just tell you a quick story. During World War One, you know, we had these fleets of zeppelins. They would come at night, and so they were dropping their. I mean, literally, got people uh, looking over the edge, you know, dropping bombs on. Well, they hoped London, but often, as you said, farm fields. These things were very difficult to steer because, of course, they had enormous surface areas. And if you've ever been in like a, a little sailboat, like a sunfish or something. Um, you realize what a 20 mile an hour wind does to that little sail. Good luck trying to hold on to that or trying to stop tipping over. Now imagine a four to six acre sail, which is the surface area of a Zeppelin. So they're blown off course like crazy. They are full of hydrogen, which it was discovered blows up when when encountered when it encounters a spark. And and so you have this these great weaknesses one of the great weaknesses they can't land in a storm because they get beaten to pieces on the ground which is a you can't go down but the story i wanted to tell was that so as when when the first zeppelins came across bombing you know london or birmingham or manchester whatever it was the british had no defense at all none churchill admitted it i mean here you have the the greatest power in the history of the world the sea power the on the on the fortress island i mean the british empire you know, completely vulnerable to these things that fly over at night. They couldn't stop. Well, the British learned very quickly. Um, one, yes, how to track them with searchlights and then how to use anti-aircraft guns against them. But the main thing that they learned, though, was what happens if you shoot an incendiary bullet or a tracer bullet, let's say from a a fighter plane into a a Zeppelin with 2.5 million cubic feet of hydrogen in it. It, it is you know, we've all seen the Hindenburg. We've all seen that picture. This happened over and over and over again, dozens of times in World War II. I mean, it was only photographed a couple of times, but the skies were literally full of burning Zeppelins floating down, as you say, these poor guys up there. The Germans didn't allow them to have parachutes, too much weight. And then what happened was it became the technological race to go higher. 
So the, the fighter planes would get to 10,000 feet and then the Zeppelins would go to 12 and then 14 and then 16 as they stair-stepping up eventually to more than 20,000 feet. Now, what happens up there to an unprotected human being at, let's say, 22,000 feet is really not pleasant for the human. It's, it's extremely cold up there. Uh, it is extremely windy. All of your gauges are freezing. I mean, you can't see anything. You're, and you're trying to get away, meanwhile, from a British fighter plane whose pilot is coping with the same kinds of issues. So a tremendous hardship, a tremendous death rate. And if you and if and if someone, let's say you're in a Zeppelin at 18,000 feet and that incendiary bullet hits and you see the spark of flame, you have, I don't know, 15 seconds, maybe, to make your choice. And your choice is either to burn to death at 18,000 feet or fall 18,000 feet to your death. So this is, yeah, the other grim, dark side of Zeppelins. They were incredibly dangerous. They blew up all the time and many people died. I think you 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 say that three people survived, which seems miraculous. And you have a personal Only three. Only three. Uh, out of all those who went down. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um but, but at the same time, they do have this huge aesthetic appeal. And I was thinking, there's a, there's a great quote from Benjamin Franklin in the 18th century when he says that um, a ship under full sail and a big-bellied woman are the two um, most beautiful things that can be seen common. It's that kind of idea of the swelling mass and the softness. And it's almost like a, a Burkean idea of um, aesthetic appeal. And I think, I, I mean, I love looking at um, pictures of these because one they are very improbable machines the scale of them is so vast the sheer scale so when when r101 the the subject of my book would go over london i mean people by the tens of thousands would come out they couldn't believe what they were looking at it blotted out the sun it's 777 feet long it's larger by volume than the titanic now it was one of the bigger ones but even the the world war one zeppelins german zeppelins were huge i mean they were they were on a scale that uh, you know defied belief really i mean and that and that also that going back to this idea of gravity that that something that let's say was 680 feet long was lighter than the air that it floated in that you could you know touch it with your finger i mean those were those were these were amazing ideas and i think one of the i think your the aesthetic uh role in the longevity or well, the fact that they lasted as long as they did is very important. I think people saw these things as just freakish in a way, incredible, stupendous, colossal, put in your you know adjective, just amazing things. And that if a nation could build one and fly one, there was some great piece of nationalism and national pride that was always attached to that. And that was very true with the Germans and then later Americans and British. Yeah. And also because they're a product of science is one other point that you make is that, that size really did matter because just a little bit of an extra diameter, if you made it a bit bit wider, you'd get much more lift. And it became a, I suppose you look at them in the air, you could look at a mathematical equation really, because it was all a question of how much could you lift up and yeah. keep stable. And I suppose is that like kind of chasing after some perfect mathematical expression in the sky. But before we get on to R101, which I'm definitely going to ask you about in a moment, I did want to ask you about another of the great um, flights, voyages. I'm not quite sure which is the, the correct term to use. But in 1919, uh, you have one of your characters, uh, Major George Herbert Scott, flies from, um, you know, flies across the Atlantic, east to west. 
I mean, I just kind of staggered that I'd never heard of this because if you think yeah. about Lindbergh's flight of, in, in the 20s, which is such a major moment that I thought, well, no one had ever done anything like this before. But actually, lo and behold, 10 years before, it had been done in the opposite direction by a different kind of magnificent man in a flying machine, if you like. And this man was um, was George Scott. Um, could you tell us a little bit about him? Because he becomes very important to the story of R101 in time. This is, uh, as you said, this is a lost moment of history. I am I, shocked too. There was the Lindbergh uh, phenomenon overwrote things in, in, in that sense of a com, you know your computer, you're overwriting a file. It kind of oh, I, I think the history that came after that started with Lindbergh and then came after that overwrote a bit the history that came before. And so I don't think the names Alcock and Brown are known. The, the, the you know the British pilots who made the first crossing so let's back up so it, it's 1919 now we're after world war one is over the german zeppelin threat is gone uh the germans have been uh effectively prevented from building any more airships and they're not allowed to and they will find loopholes as the years go by but basically in 1919 the germans are gone from the market who had completely dominated it and during world war one the british had tried mightily to you know, to imitate the Germans, to follow them. And they just couldn't really do it. The best they could do would be to, you know, find down German Zeppelins and, you know, do the girder rubbings and try to reverse engineer it back out again. And they, and eventually they would come up with something like what they had seen, but always that was two years later and the Germans had already moved on and, and they just never became operational during World War One. But one of the one of the uh, one of their like prize knockoffs was this thing called R34, and what they had knocked off was a what they called a, a height climber was a, a late generation German super zeppelin height climber, meaning it was designed to go way up and evade British fighter planes. And so they had they had this thing, perfectly good zeppelin. The war is over. Uh, they they've got this captain named Herbert Scott, who's who's a, who's a great who kind of made his name in in uh, blimps actually uh, protecting uh, expeditionary British expeditionary forces as they crossed the channel from U-boats. And so they said, we got this great captain. We've got this great big ship. Why not fly it across the Atlantic? I don't know why that occurred to them. It was the last kind of a ship that ever should have tried that. It wasn't built to do that. It wasn't meant to do that. It wasn't nearly strong enough to do that. But anyway, so the British take off in this harebrained idea in 1919 and become the first east to west crossing of the Atlantic. That's the hard way. Lindbergh went the easy way. You know, the hard way is that way. And then they made the first double crossing of the Atlantic. And this is eight years before Lindenburg. And if you look at, um, I think it's in the RAF Museum um, in wherever that is, Hendon, they have a uh, they have the uh, the control car, the front of the control car of the R-34. It looks like it's from the 18th century. This thing was such a rattle trap. It was so heroic and deservedly, people had no idea how many near misses and close calls they had on that flight. Had they known it, Scott would have been an even bigger hero. But when Scott lands back in England, 1919, he is like the greatest aviation hero in the world. And uh, the swashbuckling guy who fixed things with chewing gum and bailing wire. And it was 
it was glorious and it was glamorous and it has been lost to history. And it's, it's fun to be able as a historian sometimes, you know, to reclaim some of these lost moments. This was, this is a great one. It's an amazing thing, posterity, isn't it? When you just, some people can just completely vanish. People who are so big in, and you, you wonder who from our own time is going to vanish. I can think of a few people I'd like to vanish, but a hundred years from now, say, who's that guy? I've never heard of him. Um, anyway, um, I, I wanted to mention that one because it is, it's a great moment. Um, but I have to say it's also a bit of an outlier because you, as you point out, it was a, a, a a, a flight which was really fraught with danger 40 minutes of gasoline left by the time they got to the end all the rest of that far more often these airships would be blown off course they'd be um, caught in headwinds and and they'd often go down in fireballs as well let's leave that early period to one side and then move on a decade we get to the subject of your book which is titled his Majesty's Airship. I've got a, a proof just out in the UK. Absolutely fabulous book. And all the knowledge that I'm reproducing, I've learned out of your books. So I knew so little of this before. Um, before we talk about that, I'm going to ask you about the protagonist, um, who is the Right Honourable Christopher Birdwood Thompson, an improbable name, and quite an improbable character as well. Could you tell us a bit about him, please? Yes, he's he's uh, the first thing you would notice about him in history, anyway, is that he is Christopher Birdward, Lord Thompson of Cardington. Mm-hmm. Of course, if you're British and you, you get made a peer and you can kind of choose what you'd like to be Lord of, right? I think anyway, if if you're Kitchener and you won the big battle of Khartoum, then you are allowed to be Kitchener of Khartoum if you want to, right? So, and so Thompson has chosen Cardington. Now, what Cardington is. Well, it might sound to people who don't know it as some kind of a country estate somewhere. It is not. It is a gritty little industrial suburb of Bedford. And its distinction is it was the center of the exotic world of British airships. And that's what he wanted as his title, because airships to him, he was he was the kind of believer in airships. And R101 is part of a great scheme of empire, and he is kind of the man to do it. He's five generations of the British Raj, all military families on both sides, and he has he has himself spent uh, a lifetime, most of it in in the British Army and other theaters of empire. Indeed, Kitchener, uh, South Africa, Middle Palestine, you know, he, he and and in Europe uh, in World War One. So he's this kind of creature of empire. And uh, the thing, what makes what distinguishes him, I guess, in history is well, he becomes he's part of the first Labour government in 1924. You know, he was he was the socialist um, Secretary of State for Air, a title that I love, very Shakespearean. So in in the 1920s, he became the driving force between something called uh, the Imperial Airship Scheme. And really, that's kind of what my book is all about. I mean, he's it's he's Thompson driving forward through the 1920s to the doom of my, you know, my airship there, R101. But the Imperial Airship Scheme was this idea that um, now we're in the 20s now, so the Germans can't be players anymore. They can't be mass producing Zeppelins anymore. The British were kind of go going to go the Germans one better. They were going to take this empire that they had. And by the way, after World War I, Great Britain held the largest empire in human history. And it was much bigger than it had been before World War I, because now we're adding the Ottoman Empire, big pieces of it, plus and pieces of the German Empire in Africa and, and Asia. 
we just we have 400 million people, a quarter of the globe is now British. And so this idea that you've got Sydney, which is a month away by boat, you know, uh, Karachi, which is then in India, two weeks away. And, you know, all pieces of the, the empire were very, very far flung. And so this idea was that to populate the skies with these wonderful airships that were good for long range they were thought to be possibly better or very likely better than airplanes for, for long range travel, not for short hops. But if you were going, let, let's just say to Karachi, um, you know, you had two days, one night in Egypt and then onward floating serenely above the earth versus, uh, you know, two weeks on a steamship, you know, Sydney, a month by ship almost, you know, versus 11 days. I mean, radical, radical compression of the space-time continuum here. I mean, the empire is no longer as big as it was, right? And and this was the idea of the imperial airship scheme. So populate the skies with airships. What proved that it could be done, which was what R101 was. Populate the skies with airships. But just as important, airships driven by British technology. Now, this is harking back to this, like you just picked the 19th century, where the Great Britain is dominating the world in, in large part with technology, right? They they build the, it's the era of the great pounding greased piston, right? The, they build the best pistons and the best steam engines and the best guns and the best warships. And this and this was going to be a piece, a piece of, not military, but a peacetime use for British technology. But, and so uh, Thompson, uh, this is a very long-winded answer to the question of who Lord Thompson was, but he was the man. And the subject of my book was part of, you know, there was a sister ship called R100, but they were going to prove to the world that Britain could do what I just said. I quite like the division, actually, between R100 and R101, one being the the kind of the right wing and one being the left wing ship. Yes. Is that, is that right? Yes. Capitalist and socialist. Yeah, it's... Um... And, and actually, Thompson himself being a socialist, which is a bit off kilter because he comes from this, you know, very well healed background. And he's, I don't know, I suppose, sees himself as a man of the people with this, you know, again, the texture of empire thrown into that does make him a very um, interesting character. Very tall as well. You've got this interesting picture of him at the beginning, folding yeah. himself into a daemon. He was like six foot five or six something. Five, yeah. Tallest, uh, tallest officer in the British Army. Yeah, tall, a tall man with a big idea. I think as this this makes him really interesting. Let's go and have a look at what happens. And this begins with me asking you this inciting question. I always ask of people, which is if you could travel back through time, Sam, which year would you like to visit? Let's, let's well, see. as we as we part the mists of time and travel backwards, uh, I, I mean, I like so 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 for for the purposes of what I'm doing here, 1930 is is 1930 is just one of those years, you know. It's we're on the cusp of of gigantic change. I mean, gigantic change in global history. We have the uh, speaking of empire, all of these kind of nascent movements of for for self determination. India, for example. I mean, we have you know these seething kind of. Uh, you know, we have we have revolts going on around the world. The Nazis are just around the corner here. We're we're about to get there in Germany, and and uh, 
just the history of Asia really beginning in those years is just one of astounding change and revolution and war. Anyway, there's just it's, it's the 30 and of course 30, if you ask an American about it, they're going to say, you know, the depression, that's what we'll, that's what we'll all say. Mm. We weren't fighting at that point, but we would say, well, oh yeah, 1929, wasn't that uh, yeah, the year that we tipped into the depression yeah. and then we had all of those years of economic hardship and 30% unemployment and all the things that we had. So it's an interesting kind of moment in history. The part obviously that, I'm, that I wanna talk about here is my airship R101 and this kind of, it, because it, it th this is the year, not only that where it is finally built and put together and comes to the final fruition of all of these years of work, but it's also the year that it dies. It is, you know, empire is big in this story, isn't it? And one one event I just want to ask you about before we we talk about the scenes is that later on in the year, like October, in 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 the autumn time, they're going to have this imperial or empire conference, um, yes. which seems to be an incredibly important catalytic moment in your plot because this is a kind of you know a political center of gravity. People are moving towards this and they're thinking about it. And India is going to be one of the big questions. You're talking about the tensions that are rising in India. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about Thompson and India first? So in 1930, Thompson is building his airship, basically. The airship is, is being built up in a, two, in a giant shed in, in Cardington. And it's being put together. It's being loaded with all the greatest technology that the world can offer. And, uh, and, the, and the purpose of this airship is going to be to go to India and back. And that is going to, it's going to be a, a, this airship loaded with British technology. It's going to have everything new. It's going to be luxurious on a level nobody's ever seen before. And they're going to fly it to India and back. And it's going to sort of prove that um, this can be done. And the way this is going to work literally is that, uh, you know, Thompson is going to come back on the airship, step off at Cardington, trailing clouds of glory, go to London to the Imperial Conference, which is, you know, the, all the great premiers and grandees of the dominions and territories and everybody. Every, you know, it's, it's the it's the convocation of the empire. And he's going to go into this conference and he's going to announce that he, Lord Thompson, has come up with the future. He's going to say, here it is. I just did it. I, I'm right back from Karachi, four days round trip. This is the way the world is going to be. What's interesting here is that Thompson has, there's some other things going on here. There's a girlfriend, for one thing, that we can get into later, a very glamorous girlfriend. But Thompson is about to be kind of tabbed to be Viceroy of India, which no one really knows about. There's been, it's been rumored about that he, that he was up for the job, but in fact, he could have had the job. And the job of Viceroy of India in 1930 was you were going to rule over 100, uh, 320 million people or whatever, 300 million people, uh, including 150,000 British subjects. Uh, you would live in the largest single residence, 200,000 square feet of any head of state in the world. Uh, with a summer place that wasn't bad either. Uh, and this was the job that he would be taking. And so going to India wasn't just like, going to India wasn't just a place to go. He was going to show how how conceivably this place where he was going was going to be linked more closely to the rest of the empire and to London and England. So what we have is this this dynamic 
he not only comes from five generations of India, of Raj, of military, of generals mostly, but now the airship is going to prove his life and prove the viability of this empire scheme and all that. Where are they going to fly? They're going to fly to India. So India is lurking. Empire is lurking throughout this book and India is India being the crown jewel in the empire mm. is lurking too. It seems like from my reading of the book that he develops this hero complex almost that he is going to be the person not only to pioneer a new form of air travel, but um, in doing so, he may well propel himself to this top job, which in turn may allow him to save the British Empire at a moment of huge crisis. Or, I mean, he, everyone can see by this point that, that things are not well um, in relations with the Raj. So that's the he kind literally, of... Literally, just to interrupt, he would, as you say, to pick up on that, he would literally be taking that job to save India for the British. Because everybody knew, everybody could see where that was going. And the well, rise I think this is a fantastic dimension of the book because it's, it just adds an extra, extra yeah. layer of significance to what's what's happening. I mean, because you can read this book as a kind of trivial, as I say, like a magnificent man in a flying machine, like cantering around in the skies of Bedfordshire, or you can see it in a more serious political context. And I think that's just a, like a, a nice thing to consider. Hello there, a word about our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours. Now, it's at times like this, when the weather's turning and we're driven indoors, that a great deal of solace can be found by making plans for the future. And if a cultural holiday plan is one that you have in mind, then there's absolutely no one better to turn to than our friends at Ace Cultural Tours. They run tours throughout the year, suitable for all types of people in all sorts of places. 2024, for example, will be starting off with a trip to the Mozart Festival in Salzburg. In February, if you're feeling more adventurous, then you can head to the bustling Bay of Naples with the art historian Alex Collar, while closer to home is a tour to Elgar's Birmingham and Worcester with the organist Nicholas Wern. Then in March comes a great highlight from their catalogue. Venice, the triumph of light and colour, is a tour with the historian Tom Abbott. These are just a few of the trips that have caught my eye, but head directly to the website yourself to see what captures yours. The website is www.aceculturaltours.co.uk and with an average customer rating of 4.8 out of 5 on the review site FIFO, you can be sure of getting the very, very best holidays for the culturally curious. But let's um, let's go to the first scene because I know we've we've got here the thirtieth of June. We'll go yes. to the airship works in Cardington, and um, this is a good opportunity for you to describe our one hundred and one and its um, what should we say its uh, its condition. We're in we're in June 30, 1930, as you say, and um, our one hundred and one flew in the in the late fall of the year before, but it's got real problems with it. I mean, it was way grotesquely overweight, much too heavy. And it, it had to, a lot of the weight just had to be thrown out, literally just throwing stuff out the window. It had to be, eventually had to be cut in half and had to add, add a bay to it. Um, it had all sorts of problems with its gas bags. It has, our 101 was uh, you know, 777 feet long, 5.5 million cubic feet of hydrogen. Um, contained in these gas bags. Now, if you can imagine, let's take the just the middle gas bag, okay? It's 10 stories high, 
can't it was just think of the front and it's made out of cattle intestines backed by a very thin layer of cotton that's what that is the whole thing is wrapped with linen uh, doped linen i mean with airplane dope on it to make it waterproof but it's it's this it's this kind of combination of something strong the metal frame and something incredibly well things incredibly weak the cover which is just cloth and put a stick through it um and the gas bags which were uh literally i mean when when i say cattle intestines you you think of sausage casings that's what that we're talking about sausage casings. you talk about people actually falling through these by yeah, they go they, they drop a hammer and it goes right through and yeah. and uh why so why one one might ask before we go on would you ever use that to do that r101 had 500 500 cows in argentina in argentina died in order to make those the gas bags out of the out of the intestines the question is why because hydrogen is the lightest element and hydrogen has this tendency to get out of whatever you put it into because it is so small and it's so light. And try though they might, the chemists just could not figure out anything better uh, in that year anyway, to hold hydrogen in than this animal intestine. So it was incredibly disgusting way when these things were shipped over full of blood and mucus and these women would scrape it off and the place smelled and then they would glue them all together. I mean, it goes, I, I go into this in, in my book, but uh, anyway, we have, so our, so back to June 30th, our, our 101 is going to make a kind of a demonstration flight to Hendon with this great military show, military review is, and you know, the, the Royals are going to be there and, it's all the kind of, you know, the, the the latest and greatest in British aviation is going to be there and they're going there. But as we're coming up to it, it's just completely apparent that this thing has enormous troubles. And there's there's always a trouble with weight. And weight means, you know, you know, if you have X amount of hydrogen, it can only lift so much. And, and that's kind of what the equation is. And it's interesting because hydrogen, if it's, you know, cold out, you can lift a lot more than when it's hot out. And if it's, you know, it, it, these these things change and, and are very variable. But coming up into the show, it becomes very apparent that that the both the gas bags uh, and again, 5.5 million cubic feet of hydrogen. I mean, these things are massive. They're the size of huge buildings and they fill this 777 foot, foot frame. These things just are leaking like crazy. Mm -hmm. They've made it a, a, in order to get more lift. They've let the gas bags out from where they were and use these. They've let out their harnesses in order to get more hydrogen in there. But now the gas bags are bumping up against all the girders and metal and they're leaking like crazy. The cover is is they made an error. They tried to pre-dope the linen before putting it on, but they, it's, the, the cover is rotting. The whole thing's a disaster. Somehow they make it to the Hendon Air Show and they somehow come back. But along the way, the ship is going into dive after dive after dive. And what's happening is it's losing gas. And it's losing gas because the gas bags are full of holes and because they haven't fixed this. And there's some really harrowing accounts of just how, how close the thing came, but it's, you can imagine this enormous, and you know, and it, it comes over Hendon and the, to the world is, oh, look at that. And then it, it does a bow for the king, you know, and, and, you know, lowers its bow. It's in a bow for the king. And so, so if you look at the Hendon air show, it's this moment where all of the incredible problems of this machine 
are on display. Indeed, the problems that are going to kill this machine four months later, five months later, are all on display right here. And one of the uh, one of the problems with this the construction of this airship was that there were so many of these issues that got squelched and sort of swept under the carpet. And one of the reasons was this kind of get there itis that they had to get to India. So, I mean, as a historian, looking back at this moment, and um, obviously you've been through the archives and read the correspondence, people are working on it. There is this obvious question of why things were not... Were people really just too worried by the arbitrary deadlines that had been set by Thompson? Was there a sense of kind of inertia that things could not be stopped? But, I mean, this is a kind of personal tragedy for the people who were involved in it as well, because they must surely have done the calculations and know, or at least they must be aware of the the dangers of the machine that they've created. It's like a monstrous thing. Um, But still, off it goes. Off it goes, and and there's a... There's there are a lot of reasons for that. A couple is that just just management and bureaucracy that the the people who were running the airship works, the Royal Airship Works, were just bottling up information when a when a when a report came up saying that the thing is full of you know the gas bags are all full of holes and we can't do anything about it, they would squelch it. When the report came up saying that the covers are, are, are of the of the exterior covers are rotten, they would just squelch it and they would take it back. But there's there's two other things going on here. One is there's an appetite for risk in the era, which is higher than I think we have now. You know, and it, it, it is coming out of a World War One ethic where there were, uh, you know, where 750,000 British subjects died in World War One. I. I mean, th- th- there were it was lethal. It was assumed to be lethal. People were assumed to be risking their lives all the time. And this idea of risk, I think, was you know, was more malleable then. But the most astonishing thing about R101 and Thompson was the most guilty of this was he he knew his ship was an experimental prototype and he called it that and yet he treated it as though it were an operational aircraft and it was a mistake that they made from the very beginning the first time r101 flew thompson and the and the guys who were running it wanted to put all the the mps up in that thing they wanted to fly 100 mps in that ship one day they all would have died had they gone up but you you know, exper- an experimental prototype is something that it is very dangerous. It is expected to be dangerous. The guy flying it is probably going to die and you won't be surprised if he is. And that's what an experimental prototype is. And you don't put 100 MPs up in that thing. And you don't also put the Lord Thompson himself up on the way to India when you've never tried this before, which is what they did. And it's kind of like, you know, if you know who... You know, Chuck Yeager was the American who broke the sound barrier. You know, it's great if uh, Yeager's up in his X-1 rocket ship breaking the sound barrier, but you don't put the Secretary of Defense in the back seat. And they constantly did this with R-101. There was, I guess, a, it was a, a failure to understand risk, a failure or, or a constant underestimation of risk, a constant treatment of though as though this were, as, as Thompson said, as safe as a house, he said. This thing's as safe as a house. It, it was an experimental prototype. Mm, yeah. I mean, just to unpack something you said then about the MPs, just in case people um, are not quite fully aware of this. This is Thompson's scheme as a publicity ruse, really, earlier earlier on in the story, maybe a year or so before. Yeah, the late, late fall, 1929, yeah. But, but when I read this, I thought, well, surely not. I mean, the scheme was to put a fifth of the British um, democratically elected politicians <laughs> I told my I told my dad this story because I was reading the book. I said, "Oh, you guess what? 
happened nearly 100 years ago and you said well it's a shame they didn't do it really and i i kind of i can understand <laughs> given the state of our politics that a that an occasional um you know a massacre in an airship might be uh, might be useful but i mean this was going alongside this i mean an, an obviously a reference point for us here is the titanic and i keep i kept hearing that bruce ismay line the ship is unsinkable it seems like there's an echo here of of thompson saying well this safety is first second last and it's you know everything has been done to make this the safest ship and and people just completely convincing themselves maybe and and not seeing the detail for the the big vision is that right yeah, very much so. Uh, the echoes of the Titanic are everywhere here. Uh, the Titanic went down 18 years before R101 went down. And, you know, it's this, right, the unsinkable Titanic, the uh, safe as a house, you know, except for the millionth chance, which is what Thompson said. It was this idea. And I don't really know what it is. It may have been, is it is it British imperial arrogance? Is it some kind of holdover from the days of the invincible empire when, when you know, you, you could kind of do no wrong? I, I'm not really sure, but there's a... There are, and, and indeed, when R101 went down, it was you know, it was the Casino as the greatest, one of the greatest national tragedies, of, if the greatest since the Titanic. I'd probably say that, like in connection with the Titanic as well, is the the sheer luxury of a lot of the, um, yes. you know, the interiors of the the airship. This was it had kind of saloons and smoking rooms, which would seem a bit um, a bad idea, maybe again. It, it did though, but that that's something I I, I failed to mention when I'm, I'm talking about the building of the ship here that that. This was this was a it, it not only was a vision of air travel, long range air travel that was going to be practical and it was going to work and everything, but it was going to offer luxury that was unheard of in the air. Mm -hmm. uh, and R101 and her sister ship were, were just going to, I mean, they were going to try to approximate the look of a Pullman, kind of a cross between a Pullman car and the quarters of an Admiral's uh, steamship. And of course, it was all illusion because if you're in an airship, everything's got to be light, light, light. So it's when you're looking at the at the pillars in the dining room, they're 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 balsa wood and linen and ultralight aluminum and and uh, I mean, everything is super light and everything, but it's meant to look luxurious. So if you look at the at the lounge at, at the dining room, you know with the it's it's they it's a liveried servant there serving these great meals, and then you go into the the cocktail lounge, which is has a promenade at one end where you can you know, look down on the earth floating gently below you. And then, you know, below that you have the smoking room, which uh, asbestos line, of course. I mean, with, with literally, and there, I, went, I sort of wonder if the guy's got a thrill out of this because you're in the smoking room, right? You know that 5.5 million cubic feet of hydrogen is just above your head. <laughs> you just yeah. there. And yet you're, you're all lighting up cigars, so yeah it's um it's one way to go isn't it i mean this whole picture that you've described in june is is uh, pr pretty hair-raising really but um we'll move forward to the next scene i mean and and there's nothing here which um is so grave or perceived to be bad enough to to stop the progress from from happening and i should probably also ask you i mean the high summer seems like a good time to go up in an airship why were they leaving it till October. I mean, is it is this just a sheer case of it wasn't ready, so they had to delay this this flight to India to October, or was there some particular reason that they picked, which is po possibly the most stormy um, and I don't know inclement month that you could possibly go flying? I mean, outside now we have a storm raging. It's typical October weather. 
not airship weather. I don't know. Do you know the answer to that? No, but that's, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting that you're in the middle of an October storm because they, they launched into the middle of one. And the issue for them was more, even more than necessarily the, the weather in England or the weather crossing the channel in France necessarily. But as they went, you know, we're going, you know, a long way, I mean, 5,000 miles, right, to India. They were, because of the delays in construction, which were, you know, brought about by any number of things, but they were bumping up against monsoon seasons over there, which was a really a much greater risk to, to the aircraft. Um, and it was really picked because it was sort of like the last possible minute that they could go and conceivably avoid some of the monsoons and also get Thompson back in time for the Imperial Conference. That's why it was chosen. It was really, it was they were running out of time and everybody said his his chief uh, safety inspector was saying, no, delay this for six months. His chief designer was saying, delay it for any number of months. Hi there. Now here's your chance to win a hardback copy of His Majesty's Airship for yourself. I mentioned before that it's been a really busy few months for me and one of my jobs has been doing a little bit of history-based journalism for the brilliant new site Unseen Histories. Unseen Histories is like an illustrated London news for history and the 21st century is full of rich and beautifully illustrated content from new history books. This week, for example, there will be galleries, excerpts and more from Sam's new book on His Majesty's Airship. And thanks to his British publishers, we have two hardback copies of that book to give away to you. All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning is to head to the Unseen Histories Instagram page, which is just at Unseen Histories, all one word, and then follow and like the giveaway post. The draw will happen at the end of this week on Friday. The very, very best of luck to you. This is your second scene, really. This is the 4th of October, 1930. Um, again, we're in Cardington. And this is actually really where you start the book. And there's this great cinematic moment, really, where the, like kind of uh, Thompson's coming along in his Daimler and he kind of pulls up a mile short of the um, the mast, I think, if you have him. And he, he kind of surveys the scene. What would he have seen? So he's he's on a, it's not a very high ridge, but it, it is a ridge in, you know, Bedfordshire. And you're looking kind of down onto the Bedfordshire plain, which is agricultural. And sitting in the middle of it, we have these two enormous sheds, which if you've ever driven by there, you can see them today. You can see them for miles and miles off. Those two, air, air, you know, Warner Brothers makes movies in the now, Batman. Think Batman. These enormous sheds sitting there. And just to the right of the sheds, he's looking down at this gorgeous silver airship floating at her mast, you know, about 180 foot mast. Um, sitting there and they say you have this flat farmland with these hulking, you know, like the size of medieval cathedrals sheds. And then over on one side, you have the, you know, the, the, the airship just floating kind of lightly, serenely in, in the breeze. And then he looks down with a great, with great pride. I mean, this is his baby. This is his, this is going to, it's going to, it, it, it's going to allow him to leave his mark on history. He's going to, you know, he's going to fly to India and back and, and, and change the world. And so that, that this is the day we're, we're on October 4th now, and, and he's going to drive that Daimler. The driver's going to drive him down where he's going to board the airship. And, you know, there's all sorts of people there. And in fact, the uh, just to give a sense of how important uh, 
this was seen, um, there were there, an estimated million people had been to visit this enormous floating thing on her mast in the month before month or months before uh, the takeoff. You know, Prince of Wales had been there. I mean, you know, this was a thing. I mean, it was a, it was Thompson's baby, and they were going to fly this miraculous thing um, to India and back. And they were going to do it in, in in a breathtakingly short period of time. And not, by the way, because airships were fast, but because they didn't have to go down for, to refuel. They, they droned along at about 65 miles an hour. But if you never have to come down, you know, 24 hours times 65 miles an hour. Gets There's you going to be one far. stop at the Suez Canal and then... One stop at the Suez, yeah. yeah. And uh, there's going to be a nice big state dinner and refuel, top up the hydrogen bags, and then off for India. And, and it was... Uh, you know, it was kind of seen as, uh, and the press, the press covered this thing breathlessly as as what I've mentioned as a phenomenon, but also just a piece of technology, a piece of state of the art global technology, materials sciences. They were putting diesels into the air. Diesels had never been put in the air, which was a really bad idea, but nonetheless, diesels had never been put into the air. Um, all of this high tech, and there were and. In spite of the fact that, you know, it's, you know, okay, cattle intestines and linen cover, there, this thing is filled with extremely sophisticated, you know, pumping technology and engine technology and, and uh, you know, ballast recapture technology, all sorts of things. Like We're going to try and um, get visuals up. So there's a lot of photography from the era, which is um, in the book as well. But I think just to give people an idea of the scale and I don't know the, the style of what was happening inside. Can you tell us how many people went on R101 on this, on this flight and what kind of people? So Thompson was obviously there and I should probably point yeah. out that our old friend, Mr. Scott. At North River Scott was here. Yes. There's, there's 54, 54 souls on board, which was not the total amount that an airship like that could lift but again you got to go to indian back so you're not going to take the total with you so of those you have 12 crew so passengers if you will and this included the kind of the cream of the british airship establishment the director of civil aviation and thompson himself and you know the grandees from the royal airship works and these were in some some kind of the usual suspects from empire there and you know this these were the passengers and the rest were were the were the crew the crew are kind of you know old veterans from the uh you know the royal naval air service i mean they kind of came out because you know coming out of world war one you had even though they never flew really airships the big i'm sorry the big uh rigids operationally there were a lot of flights of these little blimps um they called them battle bags they were actually really really primitive little things filled with hydrogen and you know with like they look like a, a rube goldberg contraption completely and and uh they really did yeoman duty uh protecting uh, british ships crossing the channel and spotting u-boats and you know they were you could only put a couple people in them and they kind of went where they went, but they were, and, and a lot of the people on board, I guess, you know, had grown up or the people uh, had grown up in, in, in that service, if you will, even though there had been no kind of military use for it for, for many years. I'd be a bit speculative now, because I, I mean, you, you give us quite a few vivid images of what happens on that day. Um, three of which have just sprung into my mind. One of which is Birdwood Thompson, 
has um, a carpet from Sulaymaniyah, which is taken up from Kurdistan. Goodness knows quite why he needed to have such a large carpet, but it doesn't fit in the elevator. The second of which um, is one of more consequence, which is the possible drunkenness of Scott, who has this ambiguous role anyway, whether he's there in an official or like civilian capacity, he's not quite so sure. And if you were there, say we put you into the scene, is there anything that you'd like to focus your gaze on for a moment as our 101? I mean, actually, the other thing I think has just reminded me is that as it began to take off, there was some problems with its stability and they had to get rid of a lot of the water. And so this kind of waterfall came out the front of it. Um, that would have been the most striking thing. That would have been the most striking thing to, to an outsider, because what was happening is all these 54 people were going up this mast and were disappearing into the nose yeah. cone of this airship. This was a very unusual airship in that everything except the control car with about you know 12 or 10 people, maybe, were all put inside. So they were all inside the, the airship. They weren't in the traditional way slung beneath it. They were all, you know, so disappearing in there. You couldn't really see where they were going inside there. But then then there's the moment when, you know, there's there's tens of thousands of cars out there and they're all blinking their lights and people are singing Land of Hope and Glory and everybody's drunk and it's great and it's a party and R101 is leaving and all the locals from Cardington and Bedford are there and... It's this just this great moment. And as soon as the thing kind of lifts off from its mass, the, the first thing that happens, this enormous cascade of water comes out of its bow. And everybody down on the ground just, yeah, this is great. I have no idea what they're looking at. What they were looking at was a ship that was suddenly radically too heavy, meaning it was going right to the ground and and dumping ballast dumping water ballast dumping enormous like four tons of water ballast whoosh you know because we're, we're going down like, like we're we're launching oops we're going down you know dump four tons of ballast so it was a kind of an omen i guess uh it was an omen getting back to to you you would ask about and and one of the wish was what's the issue why are you dumping ballast because that's your only way to avoid coming to ground right you you hydrogen lifts the ballast controls it and you can blow off hydrogen to control the lift and you can use ballast to keep yourself from hitting the ground. Well, that has to do with weight. So one of the amusing uh, slash tragic moments is, you know, Lord Thompson is getting on with his 350 pounds of luggage, which is more than the crew ag in aggregate has and his gigantic uh, oriental carpet that is enormously heavy and everybody's just going, uh, you know, Scott's down there trying to get, you know, throwing out muffin tins and stuff because just to save weight and this guy's getting on with enormous mm -hmm. amounts of weight. And, and yes, Scott, by this time, the great hero we were talking about before from R34, Scott, Scott was the victim of, I, I just think uh, lack of work. I mean, as, as the airship program went on in the twenties and got delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed, Scott, whose job was director of flying for the Royal Airship Works, he didn't have anything to do, really. And so he drank. And then he drank some more and drank some more. And eventually he was pretty much one of those guys who wasn't any good after lunch. Known, known that way, uh, universally. So by the time we get to, it's an interesting moment, by the time we get to the launch in the early evening of October 4th, uh, he's pretty well drunk. It has been since lunch. And that's before this sumptuous dinner is served with wine and then you know, cocktails before and wine. And so by the time we're, we get into, we get to bed hour at 11, 
uh, Scott, who has the go no go call on this ship. He's technically not the captain, but this is a as you say an ambiguous area. But by the time we get to eleven o'clock, he's had uh, oh you know a lot of hours to be drinking. Mm. So let's move forward to the third final scene, which in a way is a culmination. And I know that you don't want to say too much because obviously we have to say at this point, if you want to really know, you've got to go to the book. And and you have reconstructed in, I think, a kind of very enlightening way in what seems to the reader to be quite an innovative way using new um, academic research, what actually happens for the first time, by the way, and I don't, this is a mystery that's been there since 1930. And I, I don't claim to have solved it. This incredible researcher named Brian Lawton solved it, but in, a, in an engineering paper in 2017 that no one saw and read. So I have the privilege of solving the crash of R101 because of this brilliant work. And it was one, one of the privileges of doing the book was to bring his work to the world. Well, I mean, your challenge now is to not tell people what the answer is whilst telling <laughs> people what happened. So I'll leave that I'll leave that to you. But like we, we are here, it's the fifth of October nineteen thirty. Can you tell us how far our one A one got and yeah. what happened? Okay, so uh, as far as spoilers go, I mean, on the cover of my book, it says the life and tragic death of the world's largest flying machine. So th- it's not a spoiler if I say that it crashed. You know, it it is. It's it's not a point. It, it it did crash. Um, so it's it's taken off from Cardington. And I I think it was about six thirty. And it's flying. It flies over London. Creates kind of a stir. You know, people see this thing because it's flying very low over London. And it then crosses the English Channel and and ends up in France. Now, if you if you took a straight line between let's say London and Paris. That would be the course that it's following pretty much going, going, I don't know if that's due south, but southerly. And the total amount of time that it is in the air on the fateful night is uh, about a little over seven hours. And uh, that's what they, you know, when that, when they, that moment from that moment when Lord Thompson and the rest of them are sitting on the promenade, looking down grandly at the people, he's got about seven and a half hours to live there. The crash takes place about 90 miles North of Paris. Uh, the, the town most people would recognize is Beauvais. Um, the, the, the village is Alon. The entire way starting from the launch, uh, it, ultimately they launch. They launch into a storm uh, that that is that is kind of brewing in Bedford, but they they shouldn't have gone. Scott makes the decision to go. They should not have gone in the storm for, for reasons that I explained. One of the one of the reasons for you know for the, the crash is all bound up with. I was talking earlier about these these prodigious weaknesses in the gas bags and also in the cover. Now this is an example. I mean. I guess people always say that generals are always fighting the last war. Um, in this case, there was a horrific crash in 1921 of a British airship called R-38, which had not been built strong enough and just basically collapsed. The metal structure itself collapsed in the air. And so the British engineers went at that like crazy and made R-101, you know, four times as strong as it needed to be, which was kind of ridiculous in and of itself. I mean, two times would have been fine. But they made it enormously strong, the structure itself kind of at the expense because they didn't spend a lot of time or not nearly enough time worrying about the, the the cover which is the thing that protects the bags which are made out of the cattle intestines 
And all of that's bound up in what happened to the aircraft. It's bound very much up in, in the failures of construction. It all happened very quickly, whatever did happen. I mean, you give us times and um, I think, you know, two o'clock in the morning, things relatively, or ostensibly, we can say at least, they seem okay. A few minutes later, there's nothing left at all, really. Do you, I mean, I think what people are most familiar with when we talk about these airship disasters are those... I hate to use the word iconic because it's become cliched, but the Hindenburg and that fireball erupts. Is this approximate to what happens in in that uh, catastrophe with R101? Yes. And uh, it's interesting because the Hindenburg was, uh, you nobody had ever seen anything like that. And when you think that that, that however many, 30 seconds of uh, Pathé film or whatever it was that they played in every movie theater in the world. I mean, it was it was nobody could believe that. But you here you had the Hindenburg going up in a matter of seconds, and the speed with which the hydrogen fire consumes the the airship is just absolutely astounding. Uh, and by the way, the, the 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 sound to that was only put on by some enterprising British producer in the sixties. You know, the the voice that says. Uh, uh, oh, oh humanity, really? right? That, that's only married in the 60s. Before that, it was... Oh. But yeah, if you've seen the Hindenburg, that's what a, a rigid airship in a hydrogen fireball looks like. I think in my book, I estimate that there were 75 of those, which is, goes back to this being a bad idea. This happened over and over again, and not just by British fighter planes. Anytime they went near the ground or in their hangars or the wind hit them, they would inevitably get beaten around and then a spark would happen and you have a hydrogen fireball. So the, the fireball that consumed 101 was exa- R101 was exactly like, chemically anyway, the, the Hindenburg. And it moved exactly from all the accounts. Unfortunately, we've got six survivors. And so, which enables me to narrate the end of this airship pretty closely. Um, not from the control car's point of view, because all they all died. But from the point of view of these people who were in different different places, one of whom was in the smoking lounge, which the irony being he's in there having a whiskey and a cigarette or a, a whatever, a cigar, whatever he's having. And uh, he's he's protected by the asbestos in the smoking car. One of the reasons he survived. But yeah, so that is the end is the end is very gruesome. The end is uh, it. It. What hydrogen fire does to human beings is 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 uh, difficult for a lot of people, even even veteran medical people, to work around because you have a lot of the corpses are are seen in postures like literally frozen at the the last thing that they did. It, it's it's very it's very disturbing. And of course, you have this seven hundred and seventy seven foot long thing that is now just metal. It's just a skeleton because everything organic except for one tiny little piece of pennant around a British RAF kind of roundel or something on the tail. That was the only thing that wasn't touched. You know, the hydrogen fire destroys everything organic as it, as it moves through anyway. So it was, it was all very shocking. And, and uh, one of the things that right after the crash, the the outpouring of grief was rather stunning. And when you think of how many people died in world war one and how many British subjects died in world war one, and you think of the 48 here, you think, well, that's not very many people, but there was something about it that tugged at the national heartstrings in a way that was almost irrational. I mean, you had, you know, overflowing crowds in St. Paul's and Westminster. You had, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in Whitehall. 
just this tremendous outpouring of national grief that was compared then in the newspapers to the Titanic. They said, well, we haven't seen this since the Titanic. Yeah. It did something to people. Um, and it may have been, I think it's partly that kind of aesthetic question almost that this extraordinary thing, how could it crash? It was mm. also the, 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 the failure of national ambition to do what they intended to do. Um, they shot, they tried to shoot the moon and they failed. Um, um, but it was, and, and this was also too bound up in the, in the tragedy of just kind of the horrible way that everybody, including Lord Thompson died. Yeah. I, I was looking at the photographs actually, and they, they have this parade down Whitehall. It looks like an armistice day parade. Yeah. There's like, yeah. is there kind of going down. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if a picture researcher muddled it up with a kind of November the 11th kind of commemorative one because it really does seem to be a national moment in that way and later on you see these coffins at Westminster Abbey draped with the Union flag it's like kind of the high level of, of remembrance but just take you back to the, the the crash for a moment were there any witnesses on the ground I one, think one. Was... <laughs> a, he was a uh Monsieur Rabouille he was a uh, rabbit poacher he was out there poaching rabbits. He was the only one who, who saw it from a distance. Um, okay. And he described what he saw. People had in the village had seen it going over moments before. And they'd, see, they'd seen it, it appeared to be laboring to them. But they, they didn't see it go down. They saw, I mean, from the village, you, we, this thing lit up the sky for miles around so they could see that. But they didn't see the actual crash. Michel Rabou was the only one who did, the poacher. Um, so we have, you know, kind of his point of view of, of what that looked like. And then the other points of view are from inside of what it's like to to look at it looking out. Yeah. And and you touched on this before, the storytelling challenge of actually trying to piece together the fragmentary, because the, there are these few survivors, how they managed it. Is, is quite extraordinary in itself, but it gives you these little snatches, tiny glimpses of life on board. So obviously there's lots, lots of the stories opaque. You just can't get there. You don't know who was- They're, they're, all, the they're all dead, as they say. <laughs> they're all gone. And you have, as you say, also the, 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 the people looking at their piece of the elephant, but they can see their piece of the elephant, but they don't see the whole elephant. And so I'll, I'll, I will leave a like, little tantalizing detail that you, you do reconstruct this, but with a lot of um, evaluation as to what you think happened, bringing in these latest theories right. as well. That's in the book. I'm not going to ruin um, any commercial opportunities here. By yeah. that. Um, but that is the story of His Majesty's Airship. It's been, for me, really, I mean, I, I just found this book utterly fascinating because it felt very original. And I say that like kind of in all honesty, I knew so little of this. And um, my own personal connection with the story is only that I had a grandmother who lived on the Yorkshire coast. And um, she used to talk in her old age about these airships that used to go over. And it was on, so it's on the fringes of human memory almost now that you get these old people who have this weird kind of UFO memory. And you think, well, they, they've gone mad. They can't be right. There's something going on in, in their heads. But I think in her case, it must have been some trials for the R100 or whatever, which was kept at Howden up there, which wasn't yeah. far away. It does kind of make sense. And and from that little anecdote, you've given me um, a lot more um, understanding. What we like to do is finish these interviews. Don't know if I've warned you or warned you sufficiently about this anyway, with a bit of um, material history. 
And it's this question, is if you could take a tangible object from the year 1930 to remind you or to have in your office, in your writing office, as a talisman of the story, or to remind you of this conversation today, is there anything of the of the R101 that you would like or, or or what would be a what would be a memento? I know I'll put you on the, the spot so you can have a moment to think about it. I could have something from the R101. They, the part of it that was visible to the world is the control car, which is slung outside of the hull of the of the envelope. And in that, there's not that many people. You have your captain and you have a couple of coxswains, height coxswain and, and uh, steering coxswain. And, and really, really, it's just a small group of people. But all this terrific instrumentation, the inclinometers and various types of instrumentation that they had in there. If I could just preserve the control car... Oh, you could go out and play with that. I'll put it put it in my backyard uh, uh, as it as it was with all the instrumentation intact. Um, it, it would to me, it, it would it would say volumes about the era, about the technology of the era, about everything. So. Yeah, well, I'd come around and have a look at it. That's for sure. Well, listen, um, S. E. Gwynn, um, author of His Majesty's Airship, one of my favorite books this year. Absolutely. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear you say that you know creative um, non-fiction which is in a way like focused on this one flight but also expands to tell a history as well thank you very much for taking the time to come on travel through time thank you it's been a pleasure talking to you that was me peter moore talking to sc sam Gwynn about his fabulous new book his majesty's airship the life and death of the world's largest flying machine for me it was the ideal sort of history book adventurous surprising and hugely entertaining as well. Do enter our Instagram giveaway if you'd like to be in with a chance of winning a hardback copy for yourself. Also, there's so much more about the book, photo galleries, excerpts, and interviews on unseenhistories.com. Do check it out. I'll hope to be back with another episode before too long, but from me for now, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>